This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us again. A recent study that tracks adolescence into adulthood showed that teenagers who have secure and supportive family relationships are more empathetic to their friends. And one of the researchers concluded from this finding that learning how to nurture empathy in adolescence is vital for building a more compassionate society, which is great. But you also have to consider some very troubling trends in this younger generation that don't bode well either for them or for our society. Not only do many of them lack interest in marriage and family, but they also lack interest in pursuing truth in many cases or even embracing the whole concept of objective truth. How will these future leaders impact our country long term? A really important question, and we're going to talk about it today with award-winning teacher Jeremy Adams. He's the first classroom teacher inducted into the California State University Bakersfield Hall of Fame, and he has written on politics and education for a number of publications and is now out with a new book, How Followed out a warning about America's next generation. And Jeremy, welcome. It's great to have you with us today. Janet, I'm absolutely honored and excited to be here. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. You have taught both at the high school level and at the college level. What would you say is different about today's students compared with previous generations? Yeah, great question. And I, I'll be honest, I, I do feel like I have a little bit of a privileged perspective because uh, I'm now starting my 23rd year teaching wow. uh, in two weeks. Great. Yeah, I know. It, it, it goes by fast. Let me tell you. Uh, I, actually have a, I actually have a daughter, who my oldest daughter, who is going away to college next week. So I, I'm, I'm feeling very old. But I'll tell you that um, I've taught long enough to be able to tell your listeners that something profound and colossal has changed in the last five to ten years. I mean, you know, one of the, the big themes of the book, Janet, is, you know, typically when somebody writes a very ambitious book with a message of, hey, there's a profound problem coming down the tracks and the country is, is imperiled if we don't deal with it. You know, typically those books are written by giants, right? Politicians, pundits, famous celebrities. Well, guess what? I'm a high school teacher, but I would tell you that I have a front row seat to American decline in a way that nobody else does. Yep. Uh, my colleagues and I, I'll be honest, the last few years, my colleagues and I, who are in the trenches every day, uh, we want to wave our hands, Janet, and say, people of America, there is something fundamentally different happening here, and it's not good. Um, there are pivots in our culture. There are changes to the way that young people look at, as you said so beautifully and articulately, this kind of moral relativism, almost nihilism, what I call radical individualism in the book. Yeah. You see the fact that they don't live in a normal human space. They spend nine to ten hours a day on their devices, which means what's happening? Well, a lot of good stuff is getting displaced. They're not dating. They're not reading books. They're not going to the movies. They're not going to football games. Half of all 18 to 35 year olds don't have a romantic partner. Mm. Half of all, uh, you know, 18, half of all, you know, uh, 18 to 35 year olds really not only have, have no romantic partner, but the desire for marriage and family mm. is in free fall. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, this is a, a different time, and we're seeing some very disturbing trends. And uh, I haven't even started talking about the 
precipitous decline in their mental health. I'm sure we'll talk about that some more. Oh, yeah. Boy, you said a mouthful there, and there's so much to get into. But for example, what you were saying in the beginning of the book as I was reading through it, I'm paraphrasing you, but it's not just that they don't know things in many cases. It's that they don't care that they don't know. And that struck me really strongly because, you know, I can remember being back in school, and I'm still the same way, very curious to know what I don't know yet or to gain wisdom that I didn't have already. And, and that was a normal thing back in my generation. I'm old, but I'm not that old. You know, you kind of look back on that and say, well, why, yeah. why are kids so ignorant in so many cases and so uninterested in getting out of a state of ignorance? Because how in the world do you deal with that as a teacher? Well, what's difficult is, you know, I, I think that you have this, you know, a lot of people think the divisions, the real schisms in this country are political, right? You know, got Bernie bros and, you know, people who wear MAGA hats and, you know, liberals and conservatives and or think people think it's racial or, or, or gender or whatever. Yeah. I would tell you, Jennifer, I think the real, I mean, the real division in this country, and it's largely generational, which you, which you just articulated very well, is between Americans who believe there, there are moral absolutes. There is objective truth. There is right. There is wrong. And of course, we have the will and the freedom to obey or disobey the rules of right and wrong. We can decide what kind of human beings we are, but those rules are beyond us. They're objective versus other people who would argue that there are no, there is no right and wrong. It's almost, it's not even relativism. It's almost nihilism that we are beyond good and evil, that we get, the individual gets to decide what's true, what's proper. So for instance, you know, 700 years ago, you had the age of faith. 250 years ago, you had the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason. Well, our, our young people, they're living through the age of feelings, mm. and their feelings are sovereign. And whatever feels right to them is the real barometer of their being. And of course, I mean, I know this is a religious show, so let's talk about religion a little bit. If you believe that, if you believe in this kind of radical subjectivism, then the entire grammar, the entire mode of communication in religion is going to be off-putting to you. Yes. You know, commandments, sermonizing, <laughs> liturgies. No way. I want to do what I want to do. And you know what? You're wrong for judging me. Right. I'm not wrong for acting immorally. Your judgment and your intolerance is what is wrong. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's a whole nother show right there. You're exactly right. So as you say, they have this implicit belief that they're free to construct individual identities and moralities that are unmoored from any objective truth because truth is only subjective. And they just assume that they walk in just assuming that's how the world is without even critically thinking about it enough so they could explain the reason behind it because there isn't any reason behind it. They just feel it, like you said. Yeah, there's a... And it's difficult to describe maybe on the radio, but don't you agree with me that there is a, a splendor, there's a, a grandeur, a beauty, an, an enchantment, especially when you're young, when you have this notion that I want to walk in a way in this life where I am connected to things that are bigger than I am. Yes. I want to live a life that is true, that is proper, that, that, that it, 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 you know, essentially accords with these greater transcendent truths of life and the universe itself. And so... I remember being a young person kind of, a, kind of having this spiritual yearning to know what's true. Yep. Is there a God? And if there's a God, how does he want me to live? You know, if, if I'm not just an accidental byproduct of the universe and, and I'm proof of a living God, then what does this loving God want from me, right? So there's this yearning, there's this desire to connect to bigger things. And so, you know, I, I wrote Hollowed Out and I titled it that. And I, I know a lot of people think it's a very off-putting title because it's dramatic. I'm sorry, it's true, though, because if you look at the things that fill our souls, God, country, friendship, family, 
learning and education and books, uh, big causes, institutional pride. Those are all the things that are not there mm-hmm. for our young people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, you have this great quote where you said uh, they don't know that they don't know. I, I would say it's not even that they, they, they don't care. Yeah. Like they, they, they're not even aware of this kind of yearning that you and I talk about because we come from a different era and we sound, we, we sound silly to many of them. Right. Oh, you're you're right on the money about that. There, There is, like you say, a nihilism to it. It's just kind of, a, I'm over it. I just want to go back on my iPhone. And here we are in the most information-saturated age ever. We have 24-7 information pouring out on us all the time. And there seems to be a lower and lower ability of the next generation to be able to process it and put things in the true category versus the false category. That's what it seems to me is so dangerous about the internet in the hands of this particular generation generation. I, I agree. And, and, and again, you know, I, I think sometimes that, you know, the knock on my book is that, um, oh, it's just a grumpy, it's just a, a, a grumpy curmudgeon crank, uh, you know, get off my lawn book. But I would tell you that, no, that's not true, that there is something uniquely worrisome about these young people who we love, by the way, I yep. love my children, yep. I care deeply for my students, I want them to live good and meaningful lives, and to acquire the habits so that this extraordinary and noble experiment called America can be renewed. Yes. Um, and, but I will tell you, there are two things that are different about them. Number one, they are miserable. This is the most unhappy group of young Americans in our history since we've been measuring. You know, from 2012 uh, to 2018, if you look at the rates of suicide, if you look at the rates of self-harm, they are skyrocketing, going up over 50 or 60% increases. The word that I hear in the classroom all the time from my 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds. You know what it is, Janet? It's anxiety. Oh. Young people are so anxious. There's so much anxiety. And of course, that's because where do they go to feel better? Their phones. Oh, man. Hang on just a moment, Jeremy. We'll come back to your second thing that's different about the hollowed out generation. Jeremy Adams with us. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford. We're partnering with Bible League International to send God's word to 1,500 Bibleist believers in Africa, in many parts of countries like Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, and Mozambique. As many as nine out of 10 Christians are denied God's word because of corrupt governments, majority religions, remoteness, and poverty. They've never been able to read 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Reading that promise of God means everything to you and me, and now it will means so much to these Bibleist Christians in Africa when you respond. Here's Pastor John in Mozambique. One occasion, I found a pastor that was leading a church of 90 church members, and he was having one Bible that was starting from Exodus and ends to the Ephesians, and he was leading the church with that Bible. So, when we went to give them the Bible, imagine joy. They sang, they danced, they cried, and they praised God for the gift of the Bible. $5 sends one Bible, $100 sends 20 $500 sends 100 and your gift of any size will help us meet our goal of sending 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YESWORD, or there's an Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
actually the, the need is great if you could remember the other picture of a lady who was trying to show me the bible that pastor i understand you work with bible but we don't have bibles here so that 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 lady had a bible from exodus to the book of hebrews that's all you see that so there is a great need of bibles send god's word to a bibleist believer in africa today for only five dollars call 800 y-e-s-w-o-r-d you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet Welcome back. Well, if you have taken a good, long, hard look at Generation Z, as a lot of us have, you can conclude, I think, definitively that there is something very different about this generation than previous generations. And it's a big problem. It's not something that you can just cast aside and say that's their problem because these are the future leaders of our country. Jeremy Adams is with us, an award-winning teacher, and he's got a front row seat to what's going on and is out with a great book. It's called Hollowed Out, A Warning About America's Next Generation. Jeremy, you were talking before the break about two things primarily that make this generation different. The first being their degree of miserableness, how unhappy they are, the anxiety, as you mentioned, the depression and these sorts of things. And then there was another thing that was very different as well. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that as well. I I hope your listeners uh, can really absorb this because my words cannot be powerful enough to make this point. It is hard to explain the extent to which young people today, unlike any generation ever, lives their lives, and I mean all of them, I mean rich, poor, black, white, all of them, you know, this is a generational thing, untethered to adult eyes, adult values, adult behaviors, and adult role models. Mm. They have achieved what every generation of children has always wanted to achieve. Every generation of children would love to have a room in their house where they can say, do, speak, whatever they want, and mom and dad can never enter the room. They are free to do whatever they want to do. Well, guess what, Janet? This generation has done it. And actually, no, actually the adults have empowered them to do it. I think it's very revealing, by the way, that Bill Gates, some of the people like that, don't let their kids have these technologies because they know the harm, because we know that young people are going to get their values from somewhere. And so the thing that's so unique about this generation is they spend nine to 10 hours, and again, that statistic is before COVID, nine to 10 hours a day on these virtual spaces, these kinds of, you know, technological ecosystems where the things that they are absorbing, um, it's hard to describe, but let me just get, tell you a story. In the, in the book, I talk about this dean in, uh, in Arkansas, I believe this is where he's from, and he confiscates phones all the time, right? Um, and he says, you know, I look at what these young people, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, I look at what they are looking at on their phones. And he said, the amount of vulgarity and pornography and violence is, is unspeakable. And children are absorbing this every single day. We're human beings. We learn by the examples and the exemplars in front of us. And we are either made better or made worse by them. Well, guess what? They're being made worse. So the adults have left the building and the kids are in charge and they watch tens of thousands of videos that I guarantee are not talking about wisdom, patience, hard work, love of country, faith in God. That's not what they're watching every day. Right. Oh, man, that's so true. But getting back to the issue of parents, I mean, theoretically, at least, if you have a parent or both parents in your home, they should be monitoring you as a child, uh, how much you're on your phone. But we have a huge crisis in the family. I think there were uh, recent statistics coming out talking about how, uh, you know, the birth rate is dangerously low in the United States. And we could even come to a place uh, in the near future where the birth rate is 
lower, you know, more people are dying than being born. I mean, this this is terrifying. What about the parents? What is going wrong in the home that is producing kids who are the way you've described? Well, I'm going to tell you two stories, and neither of them are going to make you feel good. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> the first one is this. I remember uh, a few years ago, and again, the whole book is based on, you know, I, I get to know my students. I really, you know, I try and really have a good connection. Not, you know, of course, not to all of them. Some kids don't want to have a close connection, but you talk to your, you know, I talk to my students a lot. And so, you know, I, I was talking about the family dinner, and, and I noticed that they looked really confused. Hmm. And I said, do you guys know what I mean by the family dinner? And they're like, no. I said, you know, at night when you know, your mom or your dad or both of them, you know, make dinner and sit down, you guys, you guys eat. And, and they, they, they were like, no, that's, that's not what we do. I'm like, well, what do you do? And they said, well, I, I go into the kitchen, I get my food, and then I go back to my room. And my, I said, well, what about your mom or your dad? Well, they go back to their room, or they watch TV, or they're working two or three jobs. So even in the household, you see that young people are by themselves, even when they are in the physical space of adults. And by the way, you have a whole generation of parents. And by the way, I am including myself in this. So I'm going to throw myself under the bus right now because I do this distracted parenting mm-hmm. where we're not really present with our kids emotionally. We're on our phones and it's kind of this weird meta universe where we're more interested in taking a selfie of dinner and posting it for other human <laughs> beings to see than we are to sit there in the moment with our kids and make a difference in their lives. Yep. So it's a really weird dynamic. Second thing is, you know, when you talk about the, the kind of connective tissue that families have, well, you know, they don't eat together like they used to. But we also, you know, this is where I think church comes in. Now, I'm a public school teacher, Janet, so it's, it's none of my business if my students are religious. Mm-hmm. But what, what bothers me is not that they, they're abandoning religion and, and church, because they are. What, abandon, what, what worries me is how completely ignorant they are. Like, it's, it's not even a consideration. Um, they don't, I mean, they know nothing about it. And they just say, well, I don't, I don't buy into any of that stuff. Hmm. And it just breaks my heart because I'm like, it's not like they've, they've read the Bible and they've read the Bhagavad Gita and they've read the Talmud and said, it's not for me. They don't even know what they're rejecting. And so uh, a few years ago, I mentioned, I said something about Easter and the resurrection. And I said, do you guys even know what the resurrection is? And I swear, if I'm being generous, half of them knew the other half thought Easter was about the weather getting warmer and Easter bunnies and chocolate. Uh, um, uh. And so all of those connective tissues between family and individuals, it's falling apart. And by the way, I don't know if you saw that David Brooks column earlier in the week where he talks about how adults nowadays, uh, adult children are having tons of falling out with their older uh, parents. Mm-hmm. And so this, this, this will continue on. Unreal. Well, and then they go to school and then you have to deal with the situation as it presents itself. You have to have a classroom at times of kids like this and you're trying to teach them. And then you have an additional problem where, at least in a lot of the public schools, uh, they're almost moving in a direction where they're encouraging more of this kind of behavior and they're propagandizing kids in many respects. Is there a particular curriculum in your mind that would be ideal for this generation to try to draw them out of this? In other words, you know, teaching more American history, going back to the founders, reading the Federalist Papers, even reading the Bible, as some states have been able to do on an educational level. What would be the best remedy on the educational level to deal with what we're seeing? You know, I I wish I had an answer for you, because um, one of the habits that we have as a society that I've noticed in the last 20 years is as as the different building blocks of society. You know, the church, the community, the family, uh, mentoring relationships, institutional pride. Young people don't join institutions at all. They don't join political parties. They don't join groups. They don't do bowling leagues. They just don't join anything. Yep. 
when you see that fall apart, you know what, they bring that disassociation to them, to the school. And so what you see is, I mean, I would love to tell you that I have, I do have, I have all of these amazing students who do these amazing things, but I'll tell you, and the evidence is very clear about this, is that we have got to stop thinking that making better schools and having better teachers is going to fix the problems that arrive in the school. Right. 90% of a student's success or failure happens before they step foot in a classroom. I mean, I'll tell you right now, the luckiest teacher in the world is the teacher who has students on day one who believe that what they're doing is valuable because that, that happened before they got there. And the stories that I could tell your listeners about the kinds of lives and worlds so many of our young people come from. I mean, we're now feeding on my campus three meals a day mm. if, because they're not getting them at home. Mm. Counseling services at school, paying for some of their clothing sometimes. And, and this is where it worries me a little bit because I think that a lot, of, a lot of the trends in education is to say, if you understood how tough it is in their background, then that means when you get to school, you should be understanding of them. And I agree with that, by the way. Like my dad is an older... It was you know, a different generation. He would not have been understanding. I think it's good that we're empathetic. I yeah. think it's good that we have compassion. But we have to then pivot and say, we're compassionate and we're supporting you so that we can then pivot and give you high expectations and tell you what we expect of you and tell you what it means to study hard. Because if you simply tell a student, because you have a tough background, I don't expect you to do well. That's nothing but soft bigotry, as George W. Bush called it. Yes. Well, when you meet a student who goes against the grain of this generation, which I imagine you have, what makes that student difference? What is student different from the others? In other words, what kinds of influences or what kinds of practices does that student engage in that make the difference from being kind of this, uh, you know, nihilistic student who isn't interested in objective truth versus a student who's got it together? What what makes that difference? I wish I could tell you that it's the family, but I mean, I have two children who I fight with all the time. I, mean, I, I guarantee a lot of your listeners are going to be like, well, I don't know where they get this stuff from. But if you want to know what I've noticed, it's the kids who do not have a hang-up with technology. Uh. Um, the, uh, one of the things I ask my, my graduating seniors every year, on the last week, I say, okay, imagine you could go back to your first week of high school, now that you're in the last week of high school. What, what one piece of advice would you give yourself? And it's interesting because we had a valedictorian about two or three years ago, and again, this story's in the book. And uh, he raised his hand, and he said, easy. I would tell myself to take my phone, go off to the bluffs, and throw the phone as far away as possible so that I could never recover it. And everybody looked at him and just nodded. I mean, this is an example Mm -hmm. where everybody knows it's true, but none of us have the will to do anything about it. And that's really the difference, is the ability to unmoor ourselves from this monomaniacal obsession with the devices. And again, I have a problem with this. I'm distracted. I'm looking at my phone all the time. You know, I stand in line at the bank, and I take up my phone and start scrolling. I mean, we right. all do this. Right. Right. Well, and that's the, it, it's funny, too, because a lot of uh, parents that I've talked to have mentioned, you know, remember the good old days when you could sit around an airport and you would talk to people, maybe talk to strangers, have conversations, oh, yeah. you know, and now everybody's just staring at their phones all the time. It's hurting us, like you said. And it's th- that's a really interesting example of a student who got it. And it probably is going to go very far in life just well, having made that recognition. Yes. And it's funny because if, if you look at the polling, a majority of young people wish that they would put the phone down like they know what needs to be done. I'm a bit of an educational romantic, right? I believe that what we read and what we learn creates a kind of prism through which 
we look at the world and it makes the world bigger and richer. And for me, that was done through books, yep. through reading, yep. um, by a- accessing the greatest minds in the history of the world. Oh, man, you are so right. As a fellow book lover, I couldn't agree more with you. Well, you got to read the book. It's Hollowed Out by Jeremy Adams and just a delight to talk to you, Jeremy. Keep up the good work and thanks for being here. It was really fun. Thank you so much. I appreciate you spreading the word for Hollowed Out. Thank well, you. you bet. Thanks again, Jeremy Adams. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Dr. Erwin Redliner the founding director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute, wants you to be forced to get a vaccine for COVID-19. He's got a piece in the Hill. Enough already. It's time to follow New York's lead on vaccine mandates. And one way or another, you will take the jab. Has it ever occurred to anybody that if you begin to give government acquiescence on taking over control by force on anything that they will likely never give it up again. It's kind of like taxes. Once you get a tax put in place, they're never going to repeal it. So what you have to do is fight at the outset so they never actually tax you, oh, let's see, per mile to drive your car. Make sure that you stop that before it ever becomes law, because once it's law, you'll never get rid of it. Anybody say Obamacare? There you have it. There are all kinds of things going on regarding the COVID vaccine. Let's see, more than a dozen large U.S. corporations, including Walmart, Google, Tyson Foods, and United Airlines, now have vaccine mandates. That's from CNBC. You have data now out of Israel. This is kind of interesting. Dr. Kobe Haviv, the director of the Jerusalem Hospital. I guess this is from I Can't Speak Hebrew, so I'm just going by what Twitter is reporting and some of these people who who follow these issues are reporting, but this was on Populous Press. 95% of the severe patients are vaccinated, according to this doctor in his hospital. 85 to 90% of the hospitalizations are in fully vaccinated people. He said, we are opening more and more COVID wards. The effectiveness of the vaccine is waning and fading out. Well, by all means, institute vaccine mandates, because that'll solve everything, apparently. Never mind the fact that we're still under FDA emergency use authorization status for the vaccine. There are still so many questions to be answered about what is going on and why from a whole group of people who are covering things up and lying and tearing down funding data on government websites. I'm talking about you, Dr. Fauci, after you were nailed to the wall by Senator Rand Paul regarding your gain of function research funding of the Wuhan lab. Now you go apparently as of a few weeks ago, I haven't checked in the last five minutes, maybe they've put it all back up, but they were scrubbing websites. Yeah, those are people you should trust, people who scrub websites. Oh, wait a minute. Here's a story that just came out in the last couple of weeks that the CDC has been deleting the numbers of COVID vaccine deaths reported from the VAERS website. 
That's the Vaccine Adverse Injury website where they have to keep track of people who are complaining about injuries from vaccines. Uh, They report Christianity Daily picked this up. It originally came from various sources. The VAERS database showed first there had been more than 11,000 reported deaths from the COVID vaccine. Then that was an increase from over 9,000. Then they updated it and it went down to 6,200. Then it was up to 12,000. That was actually two days before. And then it went down to 6,000 again. I mean, wow, that's amazing. So 6,000 people were raised from the dead in the matter of a couple of days. But trust the CDC. They're telling you to wear a mask indoors and by golly, that's going to solve everything. Well, here's a story that I find very, very disturbing, and I'm going to try to get into this in a little bit of detail. A lot of you are familiar with Dr. Peter McCullough. He is a cardiologist out of Dallas, Texas, and he has been doing a lot of interviews. He's done some research and published some papers with a number of other researchers, particularly regarding treatment of COVID-19 and his concerns that there isn't enough data being put out about treatment. He has concerns about what happened with the hydroxychloroquine issue and how the government responded to a paper that was put out that was later debunked. He talked back to Tucker Carlson uh, on Fox News a couple of months ago and and discussed this. And I'm going to work my way forward in time on this. But listen first to what Dr. Peter McCullough had to say back in May of 2021. This is cut one. I testified in the U.S. Senate November 19th. We have seen things we cannot imagine in academic medicine. Uh, Lancet published a fake paper that came from a fake database that implied that hydroxychloroquine hurt people in the hospital. And we looked at it in two seconds. I knew it was a fake paper. They had 70,000 patients in a database that had detailed drug information back in December and going forward. We didn't have that back then. Mean age was 49. We don't hospitalize people at age 49. This went through peer review. It was uh, agreed upon by all the editors. It hung up in Lancet for two weeks and scared the bejabbers out of the world by using hydroxychloroquine. I remember that really well. And this is the most frequently used, widely relied upon drug in the world. But something's going on. Something is going on. Who wrote the fake paper that had political uses? This is what Dr. McCullough said at the time. Cut to. Well, it came from a company called Surgisphere, which uh, rapidly uh, dissolved. The Lancet published a retraction that said, you know, we just couldn't verify the data, and so we're retracting it. No apologies, no, uh, no explanation of how this could have influenced world events. It greatly influenced the FDA staffers who wrote uh, an FDA warning, said, well, listen, we think hydroxychloroquine causes harm. Doctors shouldn't use this. It was based upon a fake paper. This went to the American Medical Association, then the Board of Pharmacies. Is this a real story? This is a real story. And doctors were writing prescriptions for hydroxychloroquine, and also their medical licenses are being threatened. There have been cases all over the country of doctors trying to help patients. And hydroxychloroquine is one of four to six drugs we use for COVID-19. It is extraordinary. Well, it is interesting because you've had a lot of media outlets discuss hydroxychloroquine as if it's just poisonous, some kind of toxic substance that nobody who has a brain in their head would ever take, even though it's been an anti-malarial drug that's cheap and it's been on the market and it's worked very, very well for decades. So what about that? Again, this is Peter McCullough, Dr. Peter McCullough, cut three. The best approaches use Uh, If we can, we would use the antibodies that President Trump received, and and those are EUA. Listen, that was uh, Operation Warp Speed, terrific. The current product is Regeneron product. We use that up front. 
We can follow it in high-risk individuals with two drugs to reduce viral replication, typically hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin plus doxycycline or azithromycin. Outside the United States, they use favipiravir, which is oral remdesivir, approved and by regulatory agencies in five countries to treat COVID-19. No light of day in the United States for favipiravir. We can use these drugs early. Early is very important. Remdesivir, two weeks later, uh, not, so, not, not very impressive. And then very importantly, inhaled steroids and then oral steroids in that middle phase. And then we use aspirin and blood thinners on the back end, just like we do in the hospital. It's called sequence multidrug therapy. I published the follow-up paper in Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine in December of 2020, the most widely cited paper from that journal for COVID-19, a dedicated issue. And this became the basis for the American early treatment movement. In the United States today, we have uh, four national telemedicine services, 15 regional telemedicine services, 250 treating doctors. We risk stratify according to over age 50 or multiple medical problems. That means only 10 to maybe 25% of people really need to be treated. Young people don't. And we get them through the illness with avoiding hospitalization and death. And if you look at the data, we're on a pretty high plateau for cases in the United States of COVID-19 and the hospitals are not overflowing. In fact, hospitals have a very manageable workload. Now, keep in mind, this was an interview from May, so several months removed from all of the Delta variant hysteria. But the point remains that he's concerned that all we're talking about is hospitalizations, testing, cases, and deaths, and there's not enough emphasis on treatment and the drugs that already exist that can be effective treatments for people who have COVID-19. This is something that's not talked about. It's kind of in the same category as natural immunity. We're not having a conversation about natural immunity and whether or not natural immunity is a better option for fighting off COVID-19 than mRNA technology, which now is being questioned as far as whether or not it's genetic engineering versus a legitimate vaccine or more in the line with therapeutics that it will help reduce the longevity of COVID-19 in your system and the ferocity of the symptoms. But again, now you look at what's happening in Israel and some of the data coming out of Israel showing you have a lot of people people who've been vaccinated, is it an indication that in particular the Pfizer vaccine is losing its efficacy several months after the jab? Now, what's going to happen? Get another booster? Get a following booster? Get a fifth booster, booster, a tenth booster? I mean, what what is going on here? Why isn't there more discussion about treatment? Well, what's interesting is Dr. McCullough's former employer, Baylor Scott and White Health, is now suing him for a million dollars, a million dollars demanding that he stop mentioning that he worked there because of a separation agreement. He says through his attorney, it's an effort to silence him. We're going to come back and talk more about that. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people and, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger, or spiritual hunger is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in 
many places in Africa, on average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um, about 100 people, and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can, you know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible League is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. You can be the answer to a Bibleist believer praying for God's word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and your gift right now of any size will help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. One of the things that has become very obvious over the course of this pandemic is how much the big people in charge don't want you to listen to anybody who is not saying what they're saying. That's why you're getting censorship on YouTube. You're getting censorship on social media. You're not getting certain people interviewed in certain places. It's all very controlled. It's all very Pravda-esque. This is where we are. We're almost Soviet level when it comes to the information, well, I would say uh, killing that they're doing on big media and it's a disgrace. And what we're trying to do is get to the truth. I've always been about the truth. I'm not about wearing a tinfoil hat and taking one position over here. And I I don't like when people just throw around the term tinfoil hat to describe people who simply want truth. We, We should all want the truth. If Dr. Fauci, in fact, funded gain-of-function research and pulled a fast one in order to get it done, then he should be investigated and dealt with legally. But nobody's going to do it because he's Dr. Fauci. And when he contradicts himself, who cares? He is the darling of the media, and that's all that matters. Hillary Clinton is still walking free. That should tell you something. So now we have Dr. Peter McCullough. He's an internist, cardiologist, professor of medicine at Texas University School of Medicine. He described himself several months back as being on the Baylor-Dallas campus. Uh, And he has been a person out in front on this issue of we need to discuss treatment options for COVID-19 and not just wait until people get so sick they have to be hospitalized and in many cases die. If you treat them early with the right medicines, then you give most people a fighting chance. Uh, And I think this is something, again, that the media has not done enough work on, maybe by design. Baylor Scott & White, where he used to work, according to the Dallas Morning News, has now sued him. And it's just unbelievable. Baylor sued McCullough in Dallas County District Court, alleging he continues to use his former Baylor titles, including vice chief of internal medicine at Baylor University Medical Center, in violation of a separation agreement that was apparently forged back in February. The attorney for McCullough, one of them, said in a statement that his client is limited at what he can say, but he called the lawsuit frivolous and a politically motivated attempt to silence Dr. McCullough. Since signing the settlement agreement, McCullough has never stated that he is employed by or a 
affiliated with Baylor, according to his attorney. But media entities continue to cite his client's former Baylor titles, despite McCullough's customary practice of informing producers that he no longer works there. Now, this was the case in a podcast that he did just within the last few days. And the host of that podcast came out and he said, well, Dr. McCullough was not the one who affiliated himself with Baylor. Uh, Our staff put it in a little... Uh, one of the little sentences that runs across the bottom of the screen during the webcast. So it was the fault of the staff. I don't know how they're going to win this lawsuit. But Baylor filed the lawsuit, curiously enough, on the same day it announced it was requiring all of its employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19. I'm sure that's just happenstance. It It's nuts. But I mean, he recently said, Dr. McCullough, that vaccines don't protect against the Delta variant and there's no clinical reason to go get vaccinated. And you're not allowed to say that. Even if you are one of the most published people in your field, even if you are a well-respected cardiologist with a great resume, you're not allowed to have an opinion. What do you do in circumstances like this? Now, he was doing another interview back in April. This is posted back in April about the suppression of early treatment for COVID-19. This is interesting. Listen to cut four. Well, there's been enormous suppression of any information on early treatment. So there's been suppression in the medical literature. There's been reprisal for doctors who are trying to help patients. Um, We have seen horrors in academic medicine in the last year. We saw fraudulent papers published in journals that were retracted. Those papers were designed to frighten other doctors and patients regarding use of commonly uh, available medicines. And I can tell you, I felt compelled to step forward. I'm the most published person in my field in history. I've chaired more data safety monitoring boards of therapies applied in a variety of illnesses than any of my contemporaries. I've seen and examined and cared for COVID-19 patients. I can tell you, I am supremely qualified to give direction on how to handle this pandemic. Patients with COVID-19 over the age of 50 who have medical problems need early ambulatory treatment to reduce hospitalization and death and to withhold that or to suppress it through the medical literature the popular media or through reprisal against physicians is immoral, it's unethical, and it's illegal. Well, that's a really strong statement. Now, he also did some testimony before the Texas Senate Committee on Health and Human Services. This was back in March. I know I'm jumping around a little bit on the months. I said I was going to go in order, but I'm not. I'm going around a little bit. This was back in March. So keep in mind, none of the most recent things were discussed necessarily. But I thought his testimony was quite interesting when he was discussing his expertise and what he is observing about the treatment issue. This is cut five. In May, I put together a team of doctors because the, the, the group that was facing the pandemic to the greatest degree was in Milan, Italy. So most of them were in the Coracle Italian Research Network. We summarized uh, all we knew about the available drugs and we published our findings in the August uh, uh, 8th issue of the American Journal of Medicine. And the title of that paper was The Pathophysiologic Basis and Rationale for Early Ambulatory Treatment. And it had a premise. There's two bad outcomes to COVID-19, hospitalization and death. The second premise, if we don't do something before the hospitalization, we can never stop it. We can never stop it. And I have to tell you, when I, and I was the lead author in that paper, but we had dozens of authors from Italy, uh, India, UCLA, Emory. We had the best uh, institutions in the United States. I can tell you the interesting thing was there was 50,000 papers in the peer-reviewed literature on COVID. Not a single one told a doctor how to treat it. Not a single one. When does that happen? I was absolutely stunned. 
Yeah, I'm still kind of reeling from the idea that a discredited fraudulent paper was used as the basis for the government deciding that you can't have hydroxychloroquine and other drugs in tandem with hydroxychloroquine for treatment of COVID-19. Because that is stunning. Now, they are on some of these government websites recommending some other drugs for treatment. But again, you're not seeing oh, hydroxychloroquine, zinc, z you know, some of these drugs that President Trump and others were touting at the beginning of the pandemic. No, sorry. Nope, you can't do that. Can't do that. Let's go on with this. This is Cut Six. And so what had happened over time is that we had gotten into a cycle in America uh, of no information on treatment. Patients actually think that the virus is untreatable. And so what happens is they go out to get a diagnosis. Now, I'm a COVID survivor. My wife in the galley is a COVID survivor. My father in a nursing home is a COVID survivor. You get handed a diagnostic test. It says, here, you're COVID positive. Go home. Is there any treatment? No. Is there any resources I can call? No. Any referral lines, hotlines? No. Any research hotlines? No. That's the standard of care in the United States. And if we go to any one of our testing centers today in, the, in Texas, I bet that's the standard of care. I bet that's the standard of care. No wonder we have had 45,000 deaths in Texas. The average person in Texas thinks there's no treatment. They honestly think there's no treatment. They don't even know about these EUA antibodies. You heard from a 90-year-old gentleman who got bamlanivimab. Terrific. Where's the focus? There's such a focus on the vaccine. Where's the focus on people sick right now? Well, because they want people to get the vaccine. They want to bar you from restaurants and airlines and grocery stores and all the rest. And they want to talk about doing more draconian things than that. You have this story now out of Tennessee. There's an executive order. As LifeSite News reports, a shock executive order greenlining quarantines and voluntary commitment amid COVID fears. An executive order signed by Tennessee's Republican governor troubling some Americans as it greenlights the National Guard and State Guard to implement quarantines and involuntary commitment of citizens in connection with certain healthcare and emergency services operations. Telling you this is the wrong way to go. And it's very, very disturbing. And what about the media? Listen to this last cut, cut seven. But I have to tell you, what has gone on has been beyond belief. How many of you have turned on a local news station? or a national cable news station and ever gotten an update on treatment at home? How many of you have ever gotten a single word about what to do when you get handed the diagnosis of COVID-19? No wonder. That is a complete and total failure at every level. Okay, let's take the White House. How come we didn't have a panel of doctors assigned to put all their efforts and stop these hospitalizations? Why don't we have doctors who actually treated patients get together in a group and every week give us an update? Why didn't we have that? Why didn't we have that at the state level? Zero. It's incredible. And you know what? This drives home the point that the American people deserve the truth and we're not getting it. We're getting suppression of truth. We're getting cover ups. We're getting mask hypocrisy. Thank you, former President Obama, because you're a sophisticated crowd out there at your birthday party. You can frolic around without masks all day long and Fauci can take off his mask at baseball games and Gavin Newsom's son can frolic around without his mask. But you better stop holding church services, my friend, because you guys are a bunch of super spreaders. No, what they are is a bunch of hypocrites, and in many cases, a bunch of liars. 
And if we are going to be a republic of, for, and by the people, then we need to start acting like this is a country that is run by we the people and demand that these people who were elected serve us and not the other way around. No vaccine mandates or passports. We must stand strong on this. We are free people. We need to stay that way. Thanks for being with us. Help us continue to send more Bibles to Africa with Bible League. 800-YES-WORD is the number to call. $5 sends one Bible. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you.